Take your Bible, turn to Exodus 16. Exodus 16, this is God's Word. It's written a long time ago, but written for you today. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. When they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. They found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the man until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Half gallon by our measure. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can even laugh sometimes as we read it. But at the same time, see ourselves. And we pray that we would see ourselves. But even more importantly, oh God, would we see Jesus. 
Give us your understanding, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. True confession. I've never really been hungry. I mean, real hungry. I mean, I've like wanted food, and I think most of us in this room, all of us in this room, have fallen in that category. But I think most of us have never really been really hungry. And by that, I mean that kind of hungry where you need food, but you just don't have food. Maybe for some of you, that was your childhood, uh, living in a home where you didn't know if there was going to be food in the pantry or food in the fridge or food in the icebox and never knowing where your next meal would come from. You know, maybe, maybe for some of you, that's your story where uh, when you wanted to get food, those teenage years where you're just starving all the time and there was just no food to be found. Maybe money was tight. I mean, if I guess more precise to say I've never really been starving, most of us have lived in situations where food is available. And if it's not in the pantry or not in the fridge, it's at Chick-fil-A <laughs> or Burger King or whatever else. And for many of us, with food always being a plentiful resource, something that we've never really had to think about, it makes a chapter like this seem very silly. It makes it easy for us to kind of lampoon and laugh at the Israelites when you think about this, if you kind of forget what it's like. And my stomach just growled. That was perfectly timed. Man, I could not have done that better. Forget what it's like. To not have food. You see, the situation that Israel's in is pretty serious. I mean, remember, they're a massive nation. Thursday Bible study, Ezekiel, we've been talking about how this is when Israel is identified as becoming a nation. When God brings them out, they're not just a family anymore. It's an entire nation. And you remember at the end of chapter 15, they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, date palms, and they encamped there by the water. And 70 date palms is really good. I mean, that's a lot of dates. But I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now, you cannot live by dates alone, (laughs) much less an entire nation on 70 date trees. I mean, even if they are the most plentiful producing trees in the history of dates, that's still not enough. And chapter 16 sets out the problem for us from the very beginning in that part that your American ears never heard. You didn't realize I even read it, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. You didn't even hear that, did you? Ah, caught you. This is six weeks after the Exodus. So they've come out of Egypt carrying everything that they own, carrying, you know, the wealth of the Egyptians. They've plundered Egypt. They've... Uh, been chased south, uh, led by the Lord. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've made it to the date palms in Elam, and they've had six weeks. You think, well, I mean, that's cool and all. Friends, six weeks of food is a lot of food to carry. I mean, that's a lot of food to carry. For those of you that like to go backpacking, try carrying more than six days of food. Now, think about those families that had lots of young kids where the kids were really young and having to transport all of their... You see what's happened here in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1. It's not just that the Israelites grumble. I mean, it's easy for us to throw stones at them and to, to be cantankerous with them. That's not really the issue at hand. 
The issue at hand is the Lord has led an entire nation out into the desert and he gave them food when they left, but he hasn't given them any new resources and they're quickly approaching the point of starvation. Again, 70 date palms are great, but not for a million people. I mean, can you imagine if all of Charlotte was trying to like, you know, subsist off of the peach stand peach trees? One, you better hope that it's the right season. Two, you better hope you didn't have a bad frost. And three, you better hope you get out there before everybody else because there's nowhere near enough. You see, the problem that they're facing is a legitimate problem. And in fact, actually, if we're going to be just maybe extra charitable to think about, maybe sometimes people get a little extra cantankerous when they haven't eaten enough. I'm sure none of you know anything about that. None of you never had that experience where your spouse or relative or neighbor or coworkers like, seriously, you need to go eat something, friend. A little sharp. Being a little gross. Go get some food. You'll feel better. But here we have, in the beginning of 16, the Israelites running out of food. And I love the melodrama of verse 3. It sounds like my days back in youth ministry, and you can imagine them flopping on the bed and the hands going on the forehead. Oh, woe is me. Would that we had died in Egypt, where we at least sat by pots of meat. We miss barbecue. (laughs) The one thing, though, that is to be noted here is that they've actually... They've intensified from the previous chapter. You remember at the end of chapter 15, they ran out of good water. They found Mara, the bitter water, and they grumbled against Moses. Now they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron in verse 2. And this complaint in verse 3 is an intensification because now they're not just saying, Oh, look, it's so bad. Woe is me. I'm going to eat some worms. The phraseology of this is, I wish that God had killed me in Egypt. And I'm going to say, friends... That's not an okay grumble. No grumbling is okay. But wishing that God had killed you is not a good line of thinking. He could answer that request. You never know. But they're missing their barbecue. They're missing their bread. Their empty bellies have begun to bother them. And so they begin to whine. Oh. In verse 4, the Lord says, I'm going to fix it. They don't deserve it, but I'm going to fix it. And in fact, actually, he gives an explanation as to why he fixes it in verse 4. And this is the key to understanding what's going on in this passage. I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. That's a weird idea. Uh, And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion. Okay, I got that. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. You see, God has arranged this situation here so that it's able to showcase the hearts of his people. But God being infinitely wise and something you don't see until the New Testament is it's it's not just that he's testing them, but he's also teaching them. He's preparing them so that when Christ shows up, kind of every major element of this chapter is fulfilled in King Jesus. We're going to look at, there's kind of four aspects 
to the test, and we're going to see kind of four ways that this gets fulfilled in Christ. The first aspect of the test here is in verses 9 through 12. Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation, come near before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. And I love this, and it notes at the end of the paragraph that God's glory resides in the cloud again. So when it says come near before the Lord, it's not just, hey guys, we need to have a come to Jesus conversation, or we need to have a, a, a time of prayer, or Moses is going to come yell at you. It's literally like, let's go have a conversation in front of the glory cloud. Okay. Fine, let's do that. And the Lord explains in verse 11, I've heard the grumbling of the people say to them, I'm going to do this. I will provide meat at twilight. Morning you will have meat and then bread. And you will know that I am the Lord. Already he's beginning to instruct them. See, the, the issue at hand is not that they need food. That's the problem He's trying to to showcase to them, look, the thing you need to learn, that the big test here is that you're supposed to be filled on me. All of your fulfillment, the totality of your fulfillment is to be found in the Lord. You need bread? Don't go to Aldi. Go to God. You need meat. Don't complain about Moses and Aaron Go to God. Your stomach is rumbling. Go to God. Don't don't have your little pity party and wish that God had killed you in Egypt. Ask him. Because he's wanting to teach you to have total fulfillment from God. All of the provision, all of the blessing, all of that is needful to be given from God himself. This is the idea that will later be picked up by the prophets, but held maybe in the opposite uh, illustration for how Israel behaves. Hosea, Ezekiel, and others pick up the idea of the unfaithful wife, the adulterous wife. And one of the ways that she is adulterous is looking for her needs to be met with other husbands. See, that's what the Lord is is already setting them up for. See, look, I'm going to provide everything for you. You just need to look to me. I'll provide everything. That John 6 chapter, that passage that we read already, Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he? Look, you guys followed me, you, you goofballs. You're looking for just another loaf of bread. Your tummy is rumbling. I have bread that satisfies ultimately. satisfies deepest longings, satisfies those holes in your heart that you're too afraid to even admit exist. Those needs that run so deep, it would be embarrassing if any other person knew about them. He is here to satisfy your deepest longings. In fact, actually, just side note, our longings are always too weak. (laughs) The problem is not that our longings are too strong. It's that they're too weak. They're too easily satisfied. We think that bread will do it for a time. It won't. 
Instead, God is instructing his people here to start thinking categorically that they are to rely upon the Lord. The Lord is the one who saves. Now, again, it's not to minimize responsibility. They're going to have to work, and they're going to have to work hard in a little bit. But to understand that God is their provider. And over and over and over and over again, Israel's going to miss this point. When enemies come around, they're going to, oh, oh, Babylon's here. Let's go contact Egypt. Let's see if Egypt will defend us. We've been studying that in Ezekiel, right? It turns out great for Israel, doesn't it? No, 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 it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It worked for the northern kingdom. No, it didn't work for them either. Looking for provision in all the wrong places. And again, it's easy for us to kind of throw stones at these folks and to make fun of them because they are, in so many ways, they're a caricature and they're easy to laugh at. But do we do the same thing? I remember the first time I uh, encountered John Calvin's arguments on retirement and savings. And it was intriguing because Calvin's argument was that it was sinful to save. It was sinful to plan for your retirement because the natural inclination would be to trust in your retirement instead of the God who cares for you along the way. I don't agree with Calvin. I think saving money is a good thing. I think planning well is a good thing. But I think Calvin's exactly right in the danger that it poses to the human heart. It's why it's so easy for us to laugh at people like this is because we, almost all of us, constantly have safety nets. We have safety nets everywhere. And are very rarely ever exposed to the real and genuine possibility of failure. I'll be honest, my first real exposure with that was when I took the call here. I'd worked at a bunch of different churches, been employed off and on for a better part of a decade by that point, various different positions, part-time, full-time, kind of everything in between. But I'd always had a boss, and not the Lord God himself, but a pastor over me, that worst case scenario, if everything went you know, south, he was going to be the one that got yelled at. And took the call here, like, oh man, there's a new level of terror attached to pastoring. Might need to trust the Lord a little more. You see, this test is designed to showcase for his people the neediness that they have. It's designed to highlight their inability, to highlight their frailty. They're in the middle of the wilderness. You know what there is to eat in the middle of this wilderness? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Their complaint's exactly well founded. There's nothing to eat. And so the Lord's going to provide two miracles. One, he's going to provide the manna, which we'll talk about in a moment. And two, uh, the quail, which is an intriguing thing. We see this actually still happen today where quail do live in the peninsula and they do fly back and forth. But one of the things, they, they're not very smart critters. They fly too far. They fly at night and they fly too far, particularly if it's windy, and they get tired and exhausted. So they l- land totally exhausted, and they sleep, and they sleep late in the morning so a kid can walk out in the morning and just pick them up by hand and take them over to eat them because the birds are just too exhausted to fly. God's going to provide a massive flock of quail in the morning. 
teaching them to trust in God. He also knows the human heart, knows that our natural condition is to, and certainly as Americans, we like the one heroic act, right? At one time, I did the right thing, yeah, victory, and then move on. <laughs> the human condition, same thing for them. So the Lord in verses 13 through 21 highlights how this mechanism is going to work, how this test is going to operate, how this learning lesson of reliance upon God is going to operate. It is not going to be the one heroic decision. It's not going to be the one walk the aisle. It's not going to be the one great victory. It is instead going to be a daily exercise in obedience. And in fact, actually, it's going to be a very hard exercise in obedience. In the evening, the quail come up. They covered the camp. <laughs> you get the idea. It's amazing. Fun. I mean, just I love the mental picture of this giant flock of birds flying in. in the middle of the night, there's a big breeze that's blowing in. It highlights that uh, another passage where the wind is whipping. Uh, they're just they're exhausted. They're spent. And so they just run out of gas, and they just collapse on the camp. And there's just birds everywhere, so tired they can't even move. And you literally can just walk out, wring their neck, and cook them. I mean, they're right there. And then the dew sets in, and uh, this is where the language gets fun. The Hebrew, it's a lot of the words in this part here and in the next part describing the manna. It's one of, they're only used here or used in other places where they can mean opposite things. And the whole point, again, trying to get the reader to realize there's no way to describe what's going on here accurately. There's no good word picture to capture the manna. They come out, there's dew, the dew evaporates, something's left behind. It's maybe like coriander seeds, it's actually more like snowflake scales of some sort of thing. We don't exactly know. Uh, I don't know how you gather that unless it's very deep. Perhaps it's like six inches deep. I mean, that would be pretty weird looking to walk out in, you know, Sinai Peninsula and it looks like it's snowed. I mean, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But the Lord says, go out, and every one of you, you gather uh, half of uh, half a gallon per person. And again, if it's six inches deep, that's not hard. You can just, you know, shovel a couple of things, except for the fact that it highlights that it's like coriander seed. And for those of you that like to cook, you know, coriander seeds are not particularly large. And if you're having to pick them up off the ground, I suspect this is... This isn't a freebie, so to speak. This isn't like snow cream in the south, you know, where you just leave it on your car and, oh, look, it's right there, and you just get it. This is hard work. They have to go out and actively work, so much so that after spending their day of labor, they've obeyed in verse 17, verse 18, when they go to to kind of process uh, their gatherings. Not everybody was able to get a half gallon during a day. Again, maybe the you know, fingers aren't fine enough motor skills to grab it. I don't know, but those that gather too much share with those that don't have enough, and it all ends up being just fine. And, oh, good, we got a meal, and guess what? You have to do that again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day, but that, not, not, the, not the day after that. But then all of it, he, he's setting them up in the rhythm of what he wants them to do, which is a daily obedience to God's provision. Again, it's not a, well, I fed on Jesus once and I'm good to go. I had bread once and I'm good to go. 
I had manna on Monday. I'll be fine till next Monday. It doesn't work that way. Instead, training his people to think that every single day is God providing for his saints. Every single day. Again, to think about how this is fulfilled for God's people, fulfilled in Jesus. To think that God has provided, He's provided Christ. But again, it's not just a get out of hell free card. It's not just a, hey, I can have my sins forgiven once and then I'm good to go. But instead, it is a calling to a daily relationship with the Lord. Where on a daily basis, He God fellowships with His people. He sanctifies His people. He encourages His people. He speaks to His people. He listens to His people. When you think about it, you can have some conceptually, we just said, give us this day our daily bread. Why would we want Jesus any less than we want our food? I want my food frequently, personally. I don't know about you. Maybe learn the lesson there as well. Of course, you get the idea that uh, the work is hard enough that there are some people that are like, nope, (laughs) no thanks. Uh, I don't think so. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to put in a really hard day on Monday, and maybe Tuesday I won't have to. They wake up and it's nasty. The man has gone foul. They're not able to do that. And then into 22, it explains this kind of next third, the third aspect to this. So first, you've got to see kind of God wants his people to be fully dependent upon him. Second is daily dependence upon him. Uh, thirdly, and this is the one that would, I would say, in many ways, kind of be shocking if you weren't, if you're thinking about it from an American church perspective. He teaches them about the Sabbath. To say, look, any other day of the week, if you gather too much, it's going to go bad. But on the day before the Sabbath, you're supposed to go out and gather double. Which is, up front, just being honest, inconvenient. (laughs) It's two days worth of work in one day. That's a lot. I mean, it's hard labor. It's inconvenient to do this, but so that on that Sabbath day, the only thing you have to do is cook it. Again, the way the grammar is here in verses 23 and such is uh, whatever day, uh, today you, you cook what you cook, you bake what you bake, you boil what you boil today, and you set aside the other part for tomorrow. And on the Sabbath day, you do not work. Again, reinforcing for his people the rhythm of the life that he wants them to have. Daily dependence upon him but six days set aside for hard work and one day set aside for fellowship with God in its entirety. Six days set aside for work, one weekly holiday. When you think about that, I mean, that's really one of the great contributions of the church. We have a holiday every week. God specifically commands us to take the day off from normal work. Don't feel bad about not working today. He told you not to. I mean, you may feel bad for other things that you're doing on the day, but don't feel bad for not working. 
It's a day set aside for rest and worship, a day set aside to know the Lord himself. And I love how, again, we get to see this fulfilled in Christ so, so well. As so much of his ministry, we see it's conducted on the Sabbath as he's discipling his men and when they're walking and picking grains of, you know, the heads of grain and eating along the way. Seeing the Sabbath perfectly fulfilled in King Jesus Seeing God's provision in the Savior. Of course, some people, maybe they're extra hungry. Maybe they're uh, in the middle of a, uh, you know, a, a pretty rigorous exercise regimen or something. They're extra hungry. I don't know. Uh, they go out to look for food on Sunday or on the Sabbath day, on the Saturday there. And, of course, there's none to be found. And, of course, the Lord is not keen on that. Verse 28, he calls Moses aside, and Moses being representative of the people, the Lord scolds Moses uh, in place of the people. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments? Go, obey, do what I've said. And then verses 31 through 36, this next aspect of the test is again this reoccurring theme in Exodus to remember the work of God. To remember, to to rehearse what God has said, what God has done. It's intriguing that God would set his people up this way. It's also so intriguing as it would be perfectly stationed for the Lord Christ to say, I am the bread of life, and for them to have some sort of kind of category for what that means as a Jew. I mean, just think a little bit about how rich in nutrients that manna would have to be. I mean, for 40 years to eat it, to not have an iron deficiency, not have a vitamin B or vitamin K or whatever. I don't know. I'm just making up letters. Who knows what they are? <laughs> to get all your folic acid. <laughs> have prenatal manna, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and then for them to be sitting there in front of the Lord Christ and for him to say, look, you, you were longing for manna back then. Your forefathers were starving. But they were starving for the wrong things. And they looked for the wrong solution. And and the reality of the matter is that all deep, real longings are met, not in manna, not in barbecue, but met in Christ. That's what he means when he says, I am the bread of life. It's that he's that ultimate satisfaction to the longings of the human person. It's been said that we were made with a God-shaped void. Every human comes out of the womb with a hole inside that is shaped exactly like God, and God alone is the one who can fill it. Jesus is using a metaphor and saying it's, it's a bread-shaped hole, not the kind of bread you can get at the restaurant or get at the store, but only the bread of life. Only Christ can satisfy The challenge for us as we go from this place is to understand that about ourselves, to look at, to pay attention to the longings that we have and the satisfactions that we seek for them. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. One, the loneliness. 
I recognize speaking to a room of this many people that there are probably quite a number of folks in it that are quite lonely. And I guess sociologists are saying that uh, the two loneliest generations in human history uh, or in American history are alive right now. Weirdly enough, they talk to more people in their lives via uh, technology than you know, 100 years ago would ever see in their whole lives. But two of the loneliest generations documented in American history. That loneliness is a longing to know and to be known. It's a longing for personhood, for persons to share and to connect. And it's attempted to be solved through dating, through human sexuality, through marriage, through all kinds of other things. But ultimately designed only to be met in Christ. To be unified with Christ, to know and to be known by the Lord Jesus. Pay attention to your loneliness. Pay attention to the way that you seek to satisfy the loneliness. Coupled right next to it, often if you have loneliness, one of the things that's right next to it is oftentimes boredom. Pay attention to the boredom that exists in your own heart because boredom, friends, is is a sign of something. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of a heart that's not captivated either with the present or with the life to come. It's a heart that's lost its focus, a heart that's lost its interest, a heart that has grown cold. Pay attention to the areas where you are bored, where you're constantly trying for new stimuli. To get you interested, to get something kind of flashing before your eyes, to get your brain moving. And to pay attention to how rarely that's the Lord that you find that interest in. And you think about really, uh, in so many ways, the modern history of America and other countries, not just our own, is really just an exercise in trying to get boredom to go away. It's television in so many ways. It's your phone, the internet. It's just trying to shut up the voice of boredom within. Which is intriguing. Again, something that can only be satisfied ultimately in the Lord Jesus. You see, what he's teaching them here is that they are to be entirely reliant upon the Lord. Now, they're going to work hard in that. But trusting in God for Him to provide for them. And the challenge for us to think about where are we not resting in Christ, our great provider, the bread of life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great spiritual food, your word, ultimately the Lord Jesus. Forgive us for being satisfied with silly things. Oh, Lord, forgive us for not looking for you and longing for you. In Jesus' name, amen.